Welcome to another episode of the Crazy Sheep Podcast. I'm your host, Big Tom Perkins, along with Dr. Cameron Meyerly. And today we're joined by the Executive Director of the National Sheep Improvement Program, Rusty Burgett. Uh, we're going to pick Rusty's brain today and uh, find out the nitty-gritty on a few of these uh, EBVs that we've yet to cover. that right there, Cam? Yeah, we kind of thought, uh, just kind of made sense to not only you know use Rusty for his capacity in the NSIP deal, but also as a polypay producer, uh, probably has a little more focus on on those maternal weaning weight or or uh, just more familiarity with that trait, uh, along with lambs born, lambs weaned, uh, and so certainly, you know, taking a, a deep dive into the, the maternal side of things. Uh, we'll start with maternal weaning weight, and I don't know about you, Tom, but early on, as I familiarized myself with EBVs, it was kind of explained to me as the equivalent of a milk EBV or yep. something that we would see in the dairy industry or the beef industry because we have an example of that in our other livestock species. So do you mind sharing kind of what it's measuring and, and the power of that EBV? Yeah, sure. Well, first, guys, thanks for thanks for having me on the podcast here. It uh, it's definitely a pleasure. Um, I'm not sure how to take it though. You asked me to talk about the maternal breeding values, and those are some of the trickiest ones to have to figure out. So right. I'm not sure <laughs> right. how I'm supposed to take that. Well, you're um, the we kind of look at you as being the expert. Yeah, I don't know about that. I've I've picked up a thing or two over the years, so uh, I'll, I'll see what I can do. So. Um, yeah, the maternal weaning weight estimated breeding value. I think it's it's one of the coolest breeding values. Um, it, uh, it, as you mentioned, is kind of one of the harder ones to understand. But in a nutshell, the maternal weaning weight breeding value, it's simply trying to estimate the genetic potential for a ewe's contribution to the weaning weight of its lambs. Okay, so how um, how that ewe impacts the weaning weight of the lambs that it rears. So it's um, yes, it's kind of a, a fun one to try to calculate if you want to get into the, the real nuts and bolts of it. Um, you know, Dr. Weaver kind of explained the the growth breeding values for a weaning weight. Um, we know that it's a it's a moderately heritable trait, um, and that's just you know lambs the genetic ability to grow to weaning time. Since it's a moderately heritable trait and it's a fairly easy one to measure, we have a lot of records for weaning weight on lambs. So that means that we do a pretty darn good job of estimating the genetic potential for a lamb to grow to weaning time, okay? So since we have that pretty darn good estimate of that lamb's genetic potential, if it grows differently than that genetic potential, if it grows faster or slower, we can attribute that to being raised by a better or a worse mother. So that's where we get the maternal weaning weight estimated breeding value. So it's not only capturing the the milk output because for that lamb to get to weaning we're assuming that it's consuming milk from that dam but it's also how well that dam does it at rearing that animal uh, and there are differences that are terribly difficult to try to capture in in mothering ability you know how do we come up with an estimate for oh yep this one this one stays within you know, 20 feet of those lambs at all times versus the one that just kind of trails off and is doing her own thing and, and the lambs are subject to, to follow. 
Yeah, that's that's one of the rubs of the maternal weaning weight breeding value. Like I said, we we get it by by looking at how well did that lamb perform relative to its breeding value for weaning weight. He said if it grows faster than what we'd expected, we said that it was raised by a better mother. So it has a higher maternal weaning weight estimated breeding value. If it performs lower than that, um, we have a lower breeding value. Um, but like you said, Cam, there's a lot that goes into that, um, having a higher or a lower actual weaning weight. Um, the largest portion of that is milk production. Um, so we'd expect to use that milk heavier to raise heavier lambs. Um, but there's a lot of kind of um, things that are harder for us to measure that um, are still captured in that breeding value. So I said, uh, when that lamb was first born, was that you were really good about getting it up, getting it cleaned off, uh, getting it up and nursing really quickly? Did it keep those lambs close by as it's out in the pasture or out in a dry lot? Um, or did it let those lambs stray too far and uh, not come over and, and milk a whole lot? Um, it, did it simply, uh, yeah, just was it a good protective mother that kept those lambs close and, and kept them eating, um, kept them out of trouble? kept them off of other use. Um, so there's a lot of indirect sort of maternal effects there that it's trying to capture. That's so that, that can be a little bit tricky because um, it's a powerful breeding value. It's it's It shows the power of the um, genetic evaluation that we have, that we can get genetic indicators of a trait like that. But it can be a little bit tricky because it sometimes it takes a little time to build up enough accuracy to really rely on those estimated breeding values. Mm-hmm. Um, I said it's the weaning weight itself is a moderately heritable trait. Um, Milk production, depending on on breed and on species, it's um, it's about a moderately heritable uh, heritable trait. But those other traits, like the uh, you know the ability to keep those lambs close, keep them up in nursing on a frequent basis, you know those are uh, I said they're harder to measure, so they're most likely going to be uh, most likely going to be lower heritable traits if we had to guess on those. so it takes a generation or two to really have enough data to prove up an animal on maternal wing weight estimated breeding values. Yeah, it, it's always interesting to me. Again, mentioned you're a polypay breeder. I think our last episode was kind of the recap of the center of the nation sale. And you know, there's certainly it'd be interesting to break that sale data down to look at what EBVs are are really pushing those rams up over kind of that threshold of of sale average and one trait that kind of sticks out on the on the polypay side is with that maternal weaning weight not that we're comparing these sheep across breed or ebbs across breed but for the polypay breed specifically and i don't know what you know that 50th percentile is but you get those polypay rams up over a, a maternal weaning weight of two and all of a sudden people are willing to pay a decent amount of money for those, uh, they certainly have some other traits going for them, but it's like this magic number that people say, oh, we need a maternal weaning weight over two. I know I've talked to people in the Katahdin side, they're like, well, we need it right around one because it's enough milk, but it's not too much milk that we have trouble drying them off. Uh, and so do you think that's more of a management thing or with increased selection for a higher maternal weaning weight and thus increased milk production. Do you think we run into some of those health issues or, or is it just on us as shepherds to be better managers of, of those, you know, mammary tissues? 
Yeah, uh, yeah, you hit on that uh, on the polyphase. There does seem to be kind of that magic estimated breeding value of a 2.0 for maternal weaning weight that always seems to command a higher price. Um, I'm not exactly sure how that number 2.0 kind of came about as as the magic tipping point for buyers. Um, you know, it does it uh, if a sheep has a 2.0, it's typically going to be in the top 25 percent of the breed uh, for maternal weaning weight and. Um, you know, in, in my neck of the woods in Iowa here, um, we typically raise our sheep uh, fairly intensively. Um, there's a lot of variation in how we raise, but, you know, we can, in the Midwest, in the East, with good grazing conditions, good dry lots, whatever management system we're at, we can typically provide the groceries for uh, that higher level of production. Um, but yeah, you hit on uh, something there, though, I think we always have to, with any of these estimated breeding values, we have to make sure we're matching up the genetic potential with the management that we're able to provide um, and the, the resources we're able to provide to those use. Um, I have heard some folks, they don't want to push that maternal weaning weight number up too high uh, because they're afraid we're going to have too much milk or it's going to be too hard to dry those use off, more mastitis. Uh, to be honest with you, I don't think we've hit that point just yet. Um, we might be seeing some of that stuff uh, like some producers anecdotally might think we've had a little bit too much milk. Some people might have a little bit of a problem with that. Um, but from the data that I've seen so far, I don't think we've quite reached that point. I think we can still um, still be selecting for maternal weaning weight, getting that number up a little bit higher. Um, you know, there are some, I have a little bit of history in working with that. It's uh, some of you may know that I used to work at uh, the Spooner Agricultural Research Station through the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Uh, it was a dairy sheep operation, and we had a lot of folks that were trying to increase the milk production in their U, uh, meat sheep ewe flocks. So they were buying dairy sheep genetics, um, breeding them onto their their polypays, their dorsets, wh whatever breed it was. Um, and unfortunately, I think all they did was they uh, they did increase their level of mastitis because if I looked at a lot of lactation curves on on sheep. And the, the benefit that a dairy sheep brings to the table is not so much the, the amount of milk at peak lactation, but rather the length of the lactation. So a dairy sheep, you can milk that ewe out to 200, 220 days, uh, whereas a, a meat sheep, um, you know, are, are more conventional breeds. You know, they're going to be starting to dry themselves off by 90, 100 days. Um, so I, I mentioned that because it's, so the maternal weaning weight, I, I don't think we're going to be getting um, that prolonged of a lactation. Hopefully we're getting a little bit more milk in that peak lactation early on when those lambs really need it. Yeah, that's an intriguing point of view. And I've never really thought because it it's eastern Midwest. There's a lot of lot of dairy breeds that end up in those flocks or a, a quick shot of maternal blood into some of those more uh, commercial operations to, again, a quick fix of of trying to throw in these traits of improvement. And I, what you just mentioned, I'm always concerned, you know, crossbreeding is a great thing, but can we find something within the breed to really push us forward? And, and how, what's the long lasting impact of that? Uh, the lactation curve thing is also fascinating. And we might have to have you back on here just to, just maybe a, a rundown on your time there, bottle feeding lambs, because uh, lactation curves, I think, is something that we don't necessarily look at 
as in depth in our our sheep operations as what we do. You know, certainly in the dairy side of the the industry, um, not the sheep, but dairy cattle, uh, beef cattle. Again, I don't know that we'd look at it too intently, but it should play a role in some of our management decisions. And if we better understood that, maybe we could be better managers. But as we roll into your maternal weaning weight, certainly a maternal trait. Uh, as we roll into kind of the rest of our maternal traits, we have number of lambs born, number of lambs weaned. And so if you wouldn't mind sharing kind of what, those are prolificacy EBVs. So if I select, say, an animal in the top 5% of number of lamb born for whatever breed, does that mean my lambing percentage increases that breeding season? Yeah, good question there, Cam. Um, so, yeah, so if you select, uh, you say you use a ram who's in the top 5% for number of lambs born, uh, that particular breeding season, you're not going to see much of an impact uh, by that genetic selection uh, because that those ewes that you're mating that ram to, they already have their genes set. You know, we're we're working on the next generation. Um, so it's you know, over time, yes, you will see uh, an increase in the number of lambs born, uh, but we're going to have to wait at least uh, at least one more generation, get those daughters in production, and then we can realize the benefits of that that genetic selection. But yeah, I mean, increase or selecting for number of lambs born. Um, if you put positive selection pressure on that, we're going to get uh, that outcome that you would expect. Over time, we would get more number of lambs born per you that's lambing. Yeah. yeah, and that's why I asked. That's one of my pet peeves. Here we see sheep sold, rams sold on social media, and uh, it's always, you know, he threw, had all twins and triplets, and so he, and it's like, well, he's fertile, and that's about all I can say about him. You know, it's not, let's not give more credit to the ram than what we need to on on our lambing percentage. All it means is he was fertile, and those ewes did all the work. And maybe you did a good job flushing those sheep up. So, you know, it's really a dynamic, though, between that born weaned. You know, those traits are are interconnected. If we don't have lambs born, we can't wean more than what we're producing. And so um, kind of what's the relationship between those and the value of, of finding ones that have higher Number of lambs war, no, number of lambs weaned uh, compared to born. Yeah, that's uh, again. These are always these are ones that are always a little bit difficult to explain. But I think once it oh, finally they're tricky. In, yeah, it, they're it makes tricky. a little sense. It's they're very linked linked traits, but they are analyzed completely separate from one another. Um, so we start with number of lambs born, and uh, you know, as you mentioned, that's largely driven by the ovulation rate of the ewe. Um, it's, it's, I've seen a couple interesting papers where the ram can have a tiny little effect on the actual number born, um, but it's, I mean, that effect is m minuscule. Uh, it's largely driven by the ovulation rate of that ewe and her ability to maintain a pregnancy. So the number of lambs born estimated breeding value is simply uh, the genetic potential for the number of lambs born per ewe lambing within that population, okay? So just the number of live lambs that she has put on the ground uh, at the lambing time. Okay, Then we fast forward out to weaning time, and then we analyze number of lambs weaned 
completely independently of number of lambs born. And this is where it gets a little bit tricky. So, so we, when we do the number of born, it's the total number of lambs born of that litter compared to all the lambs born within that breed over that given time period. Then we fast forward to weaning and we look at just the number of lambs that she weaned relative to all the lambs that were weaned in that population in that given time period. That's independent of the number that are born. Um, so that's there's a couple things there within that number of lambs weaned, though. That is both that use ability to wean that lamb, and it also factors in lamb survival. Okay, so that's uh, lumped into there. So again, I said they're in, calculated independently of of one another. We look at all of all the lambs weaned in the entire Catan population or the entire Polypay population. This litter compared to that given population, regardless of born. And that's why you can see um, some ewes will have, or some rams for that matter, too, will have a higher number of lambs weaned estimated breeding values than they have number of lambs born estimated breeding values. So that just means that that ewe, regardless of how many she had born, she weaned more lambs than the base average of that population. So if she mm -hmm. has a, a positive uh, 20 percent, that means that she has the genetic potential to wean 20% more lambs at weaning time than every, all the other sheep within that population, regardless of how many are born. And I think that's one of the difficult things. I know when we were we were out in Iowa, uh, asked you the question, there was a, a younger polypay ram with a huge spread on, you know, born was like plus 18, weaned was like plus 29. And it's like, how how is this, you know, busy physiologically possible uh with when you're you're only having x number of lambs but we're weaning an increased amount uh and it, it the other thing too is these aren't just individual metrics so there's connectivity within contemporary group of the u uh, along with all the pedigree data and how that stuff is changing through that use life and those interconnections yeah that's it, it gets really tricky because like i said they they're analyzed those two breeding values are analyzed completely independent of one another um but we have uh genetic uh, correlations between those two traits okay so we know that as you typically as you increase number of lambs weaned you also bring up number of lambs born with it so uh, those two those two traits are are uh, genetically correlated. But as you mentioned, we also have to deal with the genetic connections across contemporary groups. We have to deal with it across uh, across farms. Um, so yeah, that's the. I'm glad that the genetic evaluation is strong enough can handle all of that and parse all of those differences out. Um, it's those genetic or those genetic connections uh, across contemporary groups and across flocks that bring all the statistical power to it. Um, but that lets us find those, like you said, that polypay ram that you mentioned that had a huge spread, that number of lambs weaned was like twice that of the number of lambs born. And all that, uh, you know, that tells us that that you does not lose many lambs. Um, she might not, uh, she might not drop as many lambs as the average polypay, but, uh, you know, that you is going to raise what she drops. Um, and we're starting to see that uh, in the polypay world. I think uh, we probably see in a lot of the other breeds as well. I think uh, I've talked to some Gatton breeders about it, is maybe they're not quite so interested in what the actual number born breeding value is or the number weaned, but they're looking at the ratio of those two. Um, you know, if they're 
set up with a, a more uh, intensive management system and they can uh, do a better job of getting those ewes mothered up, maybe they can have a higher number born um, and have that number closer to number wean. Whereas if you're like uh, a situation like mine, I'm a little bit more extensive uh, in my management compared to the typical Iowa producer and I'm not set up to handle bottle lambs. So um, in my own particular operation, I want my number lambs weaned breeding value to be at least two times the number born because I want ewes that'll raise the number of lambs that they have. Uh, I'm willing to sacrifice a little bit of drop so that I don't have to deal with, with uh, bottle feeding or artificially rearing those lambs. So again, it comes back to matching up the right genetics with how you want to raise those animals. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say, that tie-in of what's actually working on the operation and finding those EBVs, you know, selecting sheep in the top 5% of the breed for every, you know, for each individual trait doesn't always make sense for your operation. And, you know, I think Dr. Andrew or Dr. Dr. Weaver did a nice job of kind of um, just kind of staying off of some selection pressures and saying, well, it's really up to the producer to, to make that decision, which, you know, I was trying to prod and say, yeah, this is a good thing. And we need to select for this, you know, overall. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's, it's a tool and how the producer uses it is up to them. And it's our hope is that they use the tool to maximize their operation and find the traits that are able to do that for them. Uh, and so when we're thinking about maximizing, you know, the polypay breed, again, is a prime example of really pushing the envelope on prolificacy. And that's what they're designed to do in the first place. Um, but with EBVs, we can actually see the genetic selection going into it. And so do you think there was a, a point in time or are they past what's kind of reasonable for uh, a lot of management? I guess, how prolific have they made the breed through genetic selection? Well, I think it depends on what population you're looking at. I think that's, I, I come back to this, one of the beauties of sheep is how how diverse our populations are and how adaptable they are to different environments, different management strategies. Um, you know, we certainly, in all of our breeds, we have some very super prolific lines and they do well in those environments that they've been selected for. Um, in the polypase, as you mentioned, those of you, we have a lot of folks here in the Midwest that are um, confinement rearing uh, for the majority of the year, able to feed TMRs throughout the year, able to provide a nice high plane of nutrition. And uh, you know, they they do very well with those high genetic merit animals for, for prolificacy. Um, we also have some polypay lines and katahdin lines and any, any other breed lines that are lower on the prolificacy that do better in a grass-based system and grazing-based systems uh, or in a, a range-based system out in the Western United States where it's um, you know, arid or semi-arid type climate. Um, so it's, I think overall as a breed, I don't think we push the polypays to be too, too prolific um, as long as we're getting this, so there's, there's prolific lines in the environments where those animals have the ability to succeed. Yeah, and you have to make prolific ones to to bring the bottom end up. You know, we need some on that outer that outer edge of that bell curve to really pull pull the breed average up or or for those producers when they say, okay, I need I need more lambs born. I need a higher drop rate. Uh, where do I go? I need to find an extreme to do that in a 
a pretty short period of time, uh, especially when we're dealing with traits that are pretty lowly heritable on the the prolificacy side of things. Tom, have you found anything on the on the born wean side of things that you say this is the magic number and this seems to be you know working for me in my my grass based operation? Well, I don't know that we found a magic number. I just kind of keep an eye on that. It's not something I push real hard for, but you know, when you're when you're trying to look at, you know, two or three or four traits that you're trying to move forward on or just maintain, you know, we like to be in that that one five to one seven, I guess in the in the number of lambs born, I guess. Now you got me thinking because I didn't pay that much attention to it because I kind of thought they were pretty close to the same. I didn't realize the explanation that they were two separate things. And now my head's kind of spinning and I'm thinking, I need to go back and look at this. <laughs> pay more attention <laughs> to this. I am curious, Rusty, when you see those numbers, um, I guess like on the report that I get back, it comes out without a decimal point. And then, or or my printer's just so bad that it doesn't print out the decimal point. That that could be as well. Um, so I have some that are like a a two one or a one nine. And then when I go on the searchable database, that's like a point two one and a point one nine. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So that, I, I should have mentioned that you know the units on these breeding values are percentages. Um, so. If a U has a, uh, say, a 20, a 20% estimated breeding value for number born, that means that she has the genetic potential to drop 20% more lambs Correct. than the base average of that breed. And so, that um, is, so, so when you read that, it's a 0. 0.20. Right, right. So on the searchable database, there'll be a 0. 0.20. Okay. Um, so you know, we convert that to a percentage, just move the decimal place over two spots, mm -hmm. and uh, we're at a 20%. Okay. Yeah. That was, uh, I was at a sale and I was talking with a gal and I, I said, uh, she was all excited because it, in the sale catalog, I guess it, it said, uh, it was a 0.5 and I'm like, no, that's a 0 0.05. It, it can't be just a 0.5. Yeah. And, uh, she didn't, she didn't think that was right. And then of course, then that got me thinking, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I need to go back and ask this question. Yeah. So with, yeah, yeah, within so, the Katahdins, that there's some point, uh, you know, maybe 0.05s in the polypase, though. We do have some some producers that have pushed those so high. I think we've got some that are in the 60% range, saying that wow. you know, they can they can have or wean 60% more lambs wow. than the base average. So it all, it's yeah. all, you know, depends on how far we've pushed that selection within those breeds. Hmm. It's crazy. I mean, I, the value, and that's, you know, we're, we're talking there earlier. We're not changing that first generation, but the value comes from, especially buying a ram. If I'm a commercial producer and and say I'm I'm here in Ohio and we're lambing out 140 percent, and I just say for for the amount of work I'm putting in and the effort, we've maxed out essentially genetic potential in my ewe flock. Then I know I can go and find a ram that produces daughters and if i'm retaining those daughters will then increase my drop rate uh, that following year and that's really the value is in 
whether we're keeping sons or daughters progeny out of that that ram out of that you uh and that's where the difference is coming yeah hey kim you mentioned that there these are lowly heritable traits so it it takes a little bit of time it takes multiple generations to really move the needle on these traits um but you know those those rams that are in the 50 and 60 percent range in some of those breeds that's just a testament of the power of using these estimated breeding values and, and the ability to move that needle. I mean, some of these guys, they've, they've been in it for uh, NSIP is 36 years old now, I think. So they've been in it since the start of it. They've been working at it a long time. Um, but, you know, on these lowly heritable traits, we really need these tools if we really want to make uh, measurable, substantial progress. There's uh, been a couple papers coming out recently um, that, that show one of the things that I've always heard from some of the old timers is, you know, they always wanted to, to select their rams uh, that were born a twin, raised a twin, because they wanted to, to increase the prolificacy. Some of these recent papers have looked back at these historic records that um, selecting for born twin, raised a twin doesn't move the needle at all over time. Mm. If you really want to move the needle, just selecting on phenotype alone, you need to be looking at selecting those that are triplets and quads. Um, mm. There's, uh, I think, a uh, a uh, group out of uh, Montana State had a divergently selected population where they selected uh, for uh, singles versus multiple births, and they selected those over time and um, not looking at breeding values, just looking at phenotypes alone. And I forget what the time frame was, but after like 20, 30 years uh, of divergently selected, it uh, the actual number born in those two flocks did not vary. It was the exact same total number born uh, of those two flocks. So um, especially on these lowly heritable traits, we need these powerful tools like estimated breeding values to really put the genetic selection pressure on and move that needle. Um, How we move that needle, which direction, that's up to us as the producers. Um, But there can be very powerful tools if we're going to be using them correctly. That's amazing. Well, we're coming up on our time here. Uh, definitely want to thank you, Rusty, for being on and and helping to explain some of these things. Um, either one of you have just a quick recap you want to throw in there? Yeah, just want to thank Rusty again for hopping on here. I know your your schedule's busy. I know that you know we, Tom and I, as NSIP producers, appreciate everything you do, and certainly feel that uh, the commercial industry could benefit drastically from incorporating even just sire lines from NSIP producers to improve production. And we hope that some of this education makes its way out there and and gets people thinking on, on the opportunity that's sitting right in front of them. Yeah, Cam, I think that's a good point. And um, to kind of uh, build on that from your last episode or, your, or one of your previous episodes where you were talking about the center of the nation sale, I was looking at that buyer list and the vast majority of, of sheep there at that sale sold to commercial breeders. It's not just purebred NSIP breeders trading sheep back and forth. Um, and that's where we can really move the, in, move the industry forward is uh, the commercial sector utilizing these breeding values and selection and, and making our overall national sheep flock more, more productive, more profitable. Absolutely. Well, we thank you for listening to another episode of the Grazing Sheep Podcast. If you want to reach out to us, you can do that by contacting me at uh, Big Tom Perkins, or yeah, Big Tom Perkins at gmail.com. Uh, 
Rusty, you got an email you want to stick out there? Yeah, folks can always email me at info at nsip.org. That's great. Uh, we also have a Facebook page, Grazing Sheep Podcast. You go on there and like and follow and all that fun stuff. You can leave some comments there as well. So it's uh, been good catching up with you guys. I think uh, we're going to have uh, Rusty on for another episode and discuss some of these other traits that we're having trouble finding explanations for. So good talking to you guys, and we'll catch you again. Sounds good, Tom. Thanks, guys. See you down the road. All right. Bye.